Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Leonard Zahn. Dr. Zahn is with Children's Hospital and the Hard Used Medical Institute, and he's a world-renowned researcher in terms of developmental biology, and in particular, the formation and development of cells in blood. Dr. Zahn, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. Well, thanks, John. Thanks for having me. So perhaps to begin this discussion, you just give our listeners a brief overview of your interest, and we can talk about some of the outcomes from those studies as we move through this discussion. Sure. My interests are uh, part of the hematology-oncology work. I am a hematologist-oncologist, and I am very interested in treating patients with new therapies for blood diseases or cancer. My own laboratory focuses on how blood cells are made during embryogenesis, and being able to harness that information and translating it into patients is really the major focus. So this process can form good cells or bad cells, specifically cancer. So I assume you look at both these aspects? That's right. There's an interesting relationship between stem cells and cancer. And you might think of cancers as having turned on a primitive or embryonic type of program. And that often occurs through the activation of stem cells within a tumor. And so we're interested in how normal stem cells are made and relating that information to how to perturb that formation in the actual cancers. I know that one of the research tools that you use are zebrafish. How does that fit into your approach to addressing these problems? Well, zebrafish is a fantastic model to study organ development. First of all, the zebrafish embryos are completely transparent, so you can literally see right through them and watch all the organs develop under a light microscope. You can see the circulating blood within 24 hours, so it's very, very fast. There is a new technology, transgenic technology, where you can inject DNA into a zebrafish and look for effects of that DNA. So you can, for instance, tag all of the blood cells in a fluorescent and color and then watch those blood cells develop. It's also a wonderful genetic system. Each mother has 300 babies weekly. And so if you're interested in genetics and how brothers and sisters relate to each other, then this is a really fantastic model system. So over the years, we've actually found individual mutant fish that can't make blood and then subsequently found out what the mutated gene is uh, using genetics. And then we found humans that are mutated in the version of that gene in humans. And so discovering a new human disease as a result of the fish. So the fish are also wonderful because you can do marrow transplants in a zebrafish and watch the cells circulate. And it's just a wonderful system to study the biology of stem cells and then relate that to humans. So I've seen on your website the picture of your zebrafish farm. How many zebrafish approximately do you, does it take to do these things? Well, we currently have about 150,000 fish at the Children's Hospital facility here in Boston. And it's an amazing facility. It's probably one of the largest aquatics operations on a per-fish basis. Impressive. I know that you've looked at some chemical genetic approaches to blood development. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit about that and how that relates to the outcomes that you seek? Sure. Chemical screening is easily done in the zebrafish system. So you simply add individual chemicals to the water and it absorbs into the embryos and can cause different 
interesting characteristics, interesting phenotypes. And so we've been looking for small molecules that can increase the number of blood stem cells that are born inside an embryo. And we found in 2007 a single small molecule which can activate the number of stem cells. And so this was the first time that anybody had a small molecule that can enhance a stem cell number. And so we took that small molecule and added it to the marrow of a mouse. And when we did a transplant with that marrow, we found that it had four times the number of stem cells that it did before being treated. And then we recently had a paper in Cell Stem Cell about a month ago where we actually took human cord blood, which is a source of blood stem cells, and added this chemical. And when we then transplanted that human cord blood into a nude mouse or an immunodeficient mouse, we found that there were more mice who had human blood if they were treated with this chemical. We also went on and showed that this was safe in monkeys, and therefore this has gone now to a clinical trial which is being done at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute at Mass General Hospital in which we're taking this small molecule and adding it to cord blood that's about to be put in patients who have leukemia or lymphoma. And ultimately, having more stem cells in these samples is a benefit to the patient, less days hopefully in the hospital, and also being able to have a longer engraftment period. So there's some clinical strategies where folks multiply in bioreactors or other system cells so they have sufficient number for a therapy. And so in this case, you're doing it with this uh, chemical that you found. Is that correct? That's right. And in this particular case, we don't need the bioreactor. We only treat the cells for about two hours, and that's done outside of the body. So we literally add the chemical to the bag of cells that contains that material, and then you put that into the patient. Very interesting. So in terms of this very fundamental and very advanced science that you use for these approaches, I know you've had some other successes that are at or moving toward clinical trials. Could you share some of those with us, please? Well, we recently had a paper in Nature roughly about four weeks ago, and in that paper, we did another small molecule screen in zebrafish, and in this experiment, we focused on cancer, particularly melanoma, which is a skin tumor that, if metastatic, is very deadly. And in that particular tumor type, we found that there was an activation of the stem cell program. So the melanoma had turned on genes that would normally be in the precursor cells of the pigment lineage. And that was very interesting because it sets up a model where maybe patients who are prone to getting particular cancers may have enhanced numbers of stem cells genetically. So we screened for a small molecule that could get rid of those extra stem cells. And we found one single molecule that was able to do that and we were able to trace down how it worked, which was basically affecting genes and how they're turned on in the melanoma. And then we were able to take that small molecule and treat human melanoma cells and transplant them into a nude mouse, and those melanomas did not grow very well. There's a new chemical on the market that attacks one of the human oncogenes. And that chemical works pretty well, but after six months of treatment, the patients relapse. So we then added our chemical to this new chemical, and we were able to see that about 40% of the melanomas just went away. 
And so that was very exciting, and that is going to lead to a clinical trial that, again, will be done here at Harvard at Mass General and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where we'll add the two chemicals together and, again, hope to look for a less relapse rate in the patients. So it seems as though there's some very dynamic activities at the moment in terms of some of these issues and emerging therapies. If we were having this discussion, say, three or four years from now, What's your general forecast in terms of these technologies as it relates to dealing with real-world problems, real-world clinical problems? I think that the stem cell field is going to have a major impact on biomedicine in two different ways. One is to find these small molecules, similar to the prostaglandin drug that activates the blood stem cells or this other drug we found, which is an arthritis drug that actually we think could use to be used for melanoma. But those will be to find these drugs that people will take and, again, will transform how we think about disease as a stem cell disease. But I think another aspect of stem cell biology will actually be to treat patients with tissue that comes from stem cells. In this particular case, transplanting in good cells to replace the diseased cells. So that's an area that we're very interested in, along with my colleague George Daly here in Harvard. We're trying to take skin cells that are reprogrammed to think they're in an embryonic-like cell. We call these induced pluripotent cells or IPS cells. And we're trying to take those cells and now program them or differentiate them to a cell that is a blood stem cell. We then want to transplant those cells into a patient and then cure them of their particular disease. And typically what we're looking at is, let's say a child who has no immune system, we would take their skin cells remove them, put them into a dish, culture those cells, then correct the genetic defect in those cells, turn them into blood stem cells, and then put them back into that patient, thereby curing that patient's immunodeficiency. And so that's what I see. Probably four years is a little bit short, but five years to 10 years, I'd like to see us actually using tissues from stem cells and putting the tissues into the patient. How do you make the stem cells go where you want in the body? There's always these debates about injecting cells and where they wind up. Is there some strategy to ensure that they go where they need to be, or the fact that they're in the blood is sufficient in your case? It's a little bit of both. So one thing is that it's known how to do a marrow transplant, which is simply you put the blood cells into a artery or vein, and those cells will actually get to the right place. But having said that, we think there's a code which regulates that process. And that process for the blood system is something called homing. In other words, getting to the home, getting to the marrow. And we've been doing chemical screens in zebrafish to try to find the combinations of these signaling pathways that will take you home, take you to the marrow. And that's been going very, very well. We haven't published any of this information yet, but we have some combinations of small molecules that can drive the cells to be at the right place at the right time. And it's a very good question. You want to make sure that the cells have the best chance to do what they're supposed to do by arriving in the correct location. Very interesting. So the other debate that continues both from a scientific and an ethical perspective is the question of embryonic stem cells. And 
essentially this discussion up to this point has been with patient-derived stem cells, from what I understood you to share with us. What's your vision of this topic? I've heard some other people say that with the success in coaxing IPS cells into being different types of tissue, that it may not be necessary to rely on embryonic stem cells for some of the therapies. Well, I think ultimately the IPS technology will be the one that's most used therapeutically. And the reason is very simple in that you can take a skin cell from a person, and then if you turn that into a particular organ, that organ will be from that person and therefore not be rejected. Having said that, we're really at the beginning of these IPS technology experiments. We make them all the time in the laboratory, but we need a gold standard to actually control the experiments and make sure that the iPS cells are truly reprogrammed in the full way that an embryonic stem cell works. Embryonic stem cells can make all the tissues of the body, it can make another animal, and so that really is the gold standard and we need to continue our work on embryonic stem cells to really make the iPS cells functional. So um, I, there's a lot of interest in some recent legal cases in which federal funding for embryonic stem cell research was put on hold by a judge last August. And then recently this past week in appellate court, there was a decision which said that an injunction about using federal dollars should be stopped and so that we are able to use federal dollars, although the case is still going to be heard by the original judge. So having said all of that, it illustrates how the battle around ethics can have a huge impact on the research. At a certain point over the past year, even though Obama was very much in favor of allowing federal dollars for embryonic stem cell research, the work was put on hold. And again, it frustrates all the researchers having to find private philanthropy as the only source of money to be able to do those experiments. So the debate will continue, but what I can say is we absolutely need the gold standard of embryonic stem cells to compare these iPS cells to, and the research that's being done in embryonic stem cells will foster a number of discoveries that will happen in the iPS technology, and I think that that's the best chance for success of making stem cells useful in the clinic. I just recently saw that the first embryonic stem cell clinical trial has started or about to start. That's right. There's actually a couple of them that are starting. And in the first experiment, which is an experiment done by Geron, the stem cells are being coaxed to a supportive cell for neurons. And the idea is that in the spinal cord injury, you would be able to infuse these tissue from the embryonic stem cell that thinks it's the supportive cells, and it will help the recovery during the spinal cord. And so they've just started recruiting patients, and a few patients have actually been treated already. So the jury's still out, obviously, and some more science and some more clinical experience will give some more insight as to these particular topics. So, Dr. Zahn, I know one of the professional societies that you've been very active in, and in fact the founder of, is the International Society for Stem Cell Research. Uh, How does that fit into this broad picture of developing and implementing new science and technology? The International Society for Stem Cell Research is really the brain trust of stem cell researchers in the world. It's roughly about 3,500 researchers who have a yearly meeting, and that society has done a number of things to help the field, not only scientifically, but also to take on ethics and therapeutics of stem cells. So they recently wrote guidelines on the clinical translation 
of stem cells. And this is very important because a number of fields hype their information too much and it could cause damage. We worry about how these stem cell populations truly will behave as time goes on. And so it's important to do the best job we possibly can to make sure that everything is in order in the clinical trials that will ultimately be done. And the ISSCR has done a fantastic job on creating these guidelines that will really facilitate the field. The other thing recently which the ISSCR has gotten into is having to deal with clinics that are proposing to do stem cell treatments. About twice a week, I'm contacted by a patient or a patient's family about taking them to another country, sometimes in South America or in Russia or, or in different parts of Europe, and having stem cell therapy. And the idea is that the stem cells will actually fix whatever disease is occurring in that family member. And most of these clinics are really just falsified. They do not have an accurate therapy. It's not based on good science. The internal review board or IRB has not really allowed them to do the work. And it's just bad science and bad medicine. If you go on a website and see, sometimes they'll say stem cells, and then they'll start listing the diseases that can be cured with stem cells, and it includes hundreds of diseases, which really is very unlikely to be the case. So the ISSCR has created guidelines on its website for patients. If you go on their website and see what questions you need to ask of these clinics before you would go. And the best advice is to get stem cell researchers in the field who really know what they're talking about to actually say whether the clinic is valid or not. They often cause financial difficulties, fifty to $75,000 per treatment. And it's just a shame when somebody is going for a therapy thinking they're going to get better, but they're just being taken for a ride. So the other uh, problem is that some of these stem cell therapies could be toxic. There was one child who died as a result of getting a stem cell therapy that really never had any proof of principle. So the ISSCR has taken on that issue, and it's very important that the public knows about that website. Yeah, and for our listeners' benefit, it's just ISSCR.org. And the point that you make that we need to be careful not to overhype and deal with people's hopes and aspirations that some of these technologies are applicable to their illness. I think for all regenerative medicine, whether it's tissue engineering or stem cell therapy, that we need to not overpromise what was realistic for this state of maturity of the technology. So, Dr. Zahn, thank you for joining us by phone today from Boston to share with us your exciting and very promising research and the clinical outcomes that are now becoming possible from these studies. Uh, I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine for sponsoring these podcasts and remind our listeners you can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Until we meet again with another exciting interview, best wishes to all our listeners. Thank you. Thank you.